much for coming to this session straight after lunch. As your program says, this is a panel on uh, transitional justice and peace building. I'm not going to give too much of an introduction to this particular panel because I think many of the issues looking at justice and peace building that came out of the plenary this morning will actually flow quite naturally into this particular session. Essentially what this panel is going to look at are, again, some of these tensions between peace and justice. Uh, conceptually speaking, how compatible uh, are they? Uh, how complementary are they? What do justice processes look like in the aftermath of mass conflict, particularly when peace negotiations are an element of that post-conflict uh, dynamic? Each of the speakers that we're going to hear from in this session have an enormous amount of experience as scholars and practitioners, so again, I think we're going to hear much of the, the same sort of dynamic, the same sort of flavour that we heard this morning, uh, looking at, at, at academic, but, but also a very practical issue relating to transitional justice and, and peace building. Our first speaker is uh, Don Ferencz who is a great friend of uh, the Transitional Justice Group here, here in Oxford and also Box Peace. Don is the director of the Planethood Foundation, who have been very generous supporters of, of the Transitional Justice Group in Oxford right, right from the outset, and we're very grateful uh, for that. Um, Don, as it happens, has a, a BA in Peace Studies uh, from Colgate University, so he's uh, grounded in, in this field right from the outset. He's also currently on the International Criminal Court's Working Group on the Crime of Aggression. So this relates to a topic that is going to feature very prominently in the ICC Review Conference in Kampala uh, in a couple of weeks' time, whether or not to include the crime of aggression in the Rome Statute and therefore make it a prosecutable crime at, at the international level. Uh, Don is going to, to speak to us uh, on the topic of countdown to Kampala, will aggressive war-making be outlawed? He's then going to be followed by Dr. Wendy Lamborn, uh, who's a senior lecturer and academic coordinator of peace and conflict studies at, at the University of Sydney. Uh, Wendy's also the uh, co-convener of the Justice and Reconciliation Commission of the International Peace Research Association. And Wendy is going to speak to us on the issue of transformative justice and peace building after mass violence. And our final speaker will be Dr. Phyllis Ferguson. Again, Phyllis is very well known around Oxford, having been here for, for a very long time and been involved in, in many uh, initiatives in, in the university. Um, she, of course, was a fellow of St. Anthony's College uh, for, for uh, six, seven years. Uh, she was based in, in Timor-Leste in a variety of roles, uh, working with UNDP and, and various other initiatives, also connected very closely to the Timorese uh, Truth Commission. And that experience, I'm sure, is going to infuse much of her presentation to us today. Uh, Phyllis is going to speak to us on the topic of building peace in post-conflict Timor-Leste, the role of women and children. So the speakers are going to present uh, roughly for about 15 or 20 minutes each, um, one after the other, and then we'll have a, a Q&A session for about half an hour afterwards that, that hopefully we'll pick up on some of the consistent themes across the three presentations. Um, but over to you now. Don, thank you very much. Okay. Uh, thanks very much. Is this on? It says on. Let's see. Someone work? Yeah. It's on. It's on. 
Well, thanks, thanks very much, Phil. Uh, when Phil says that uh, I have a BA in peace studies, so I was grounded from the beginning, he's correct, but I'd want to go back even further to my beginning because I was born in Nuremberg, Germany, where my father had served at the ripe old age of 27 years old as a chief prosecutor and were part of the subsequent uh, tribunals at the Nuremberg trials. He was the chief prosecutor of the Einsatzgruppen case, which were the German death squads that would come in behind the advancing lines and slaughter thousands of innocents uh, as the German troops moved on. And uh, he stayed on after the war doing uh, work for uh, restitution of the victims of the Holocaust. And I was born in Nuremberg in 1952. And I grew up with really from a very tender age, an awareness of the atrocities that had been committed in World War II. My dad is, I think, and he's still living today, very active at age 90, he'll be going with me to Kampala in two weeks. But my dad showed his young children photographs uh, that he obtained when they were liberating many of the Nazi concentration camps. And uh, so I, I grew up seeing this stuff at, at a very early age and living with an awareness that my father had been at Nuremberg and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the underpinnings of what's happening today at the International Criminal Court tracing back both to Nuremberg and before. So I grew up with this my whole life, hearing that there was such a thing as aggressive war and that it was something that was bad. So I've been brainwashed from a young age. But having thought about it as an adult, I agree with the conclusion that war is not a good thing. We can avoid it. I was certainly very interested today when Professor Alton was talking about what do you do after, what comes next after you think you put in place a better structure. So what I'm going to do is just give you a kind of a story report on what is happening right now today with respect to the International Criminal Court's effort to give the court the ability to actually try perpetrators for what is called crime of aggression, or what may be called crime of aggression. Uh, we all know about the Nuremberg trials. We know that the German Nazi high command was tried for crimes against humanity. They didn't have genocide as a defined crime. It didn't exist in the lexicon at that time. They were crime, tried for crimes against peace as well, and war crimes. Crimes against peace being defined as waging wars of aggression in violation of international treaties. And there was some big question at Nuremberg as to whether or not they were making up this law as they went along. In other words, was it ex post facto law? Was there really a law of nations or customary international law that said it's illegal to wage war when you simply declare war on a neighbor country? So this was a question that was considered, even at the time of Nuremberg, to be a little bit fuzzy. After World War I, some of you may know, they tried to try the Kaiser for crimes. He was never tried. Uh, he went to the Netherlands. Most of the royalty throughout Europe was for descendants of William of Orange in one connection or another. And so they weren't very uh, uh, eager to turn over their cousins to be tried. Uh, but we had the League of Nations, which in the 1920s began the process of trying to define the crime of aggression and come up with protocols that would prevent the commission of the crime of aggression. They failed. There were some other pacts. Uh, again, during the 20s, there was a very well-known treaty that came into effect called the, depending upon where you live, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, or the Briand-Kellogg Pact, which was a treaty for the renunciation of war. And it was signed by most of the major European countries and the United States. 
I was interested this morning when somebody from the audience, I think, talked about the abolition of war, and Professor Felton said that the United Nations Charter has already abolished war. Well, it made me think of discussions that were had on the floor of the United States Senate in 1928 when the Kellogg-Briand Pact Treaty was up for ratification. It was voted for almost unanimously in the United States Senate. There was only one senator who voted against U.S. ratification of the treaty for the renunciation of war as an instrument of national policy. His name was James J. Blaine from Wisconsin. And on the 13th, I think it was, of, of January 28th, he got up on the Senate floor and he said, this treaty is laying the seeds for the next great war because it has no provision for sanctions. And he said, you're kidding yourselves if you think you're really deluding yourselves. If you think simply by agreeing not to go to war, but not having any accountability mechanism, you're kidding yourselves if you think this is going to apply. And as a small historical point, because we are here in Oxford, the British were very clever in inserting into the process of the adoption of that treaty understandings which were similar to what we sometimes call reservations to treaties, saying that their understanding was that while they were agreeing to renounce war as an instrument of national policy, they reserved the right to themselves to act in self-defense. Of course, the treaty didn't define what is meant by self-defense. It was the prerogative of all of the signatories to the treaty to determine what they felt was self-defense, whether to be preemptive self-defense or otherwise. And James J. Blaine had the courage to stand up on the floor of the Senate and say, this is a fraud on the public. Pass a bill for the renunciation of war, which doesn't bring anyone to account if they break that promise. Now we roll forward to Nuremberg. The Germans, in fact, had been signatories to the Kellogg-Briand Pact. And it was mentioned at Nuremberg that they violated that pact, that oath. Again, the treaty itself had no provision for sanction. But at Nuremberg, there was something really dramatic that was at least in the mind of the prosecutors at the major international military tribunal, the four powers trying the Nazi high command. There was something in their mind that was happening that went well beyond simply prosecuting the Germans for horrific crimes that anyone uh, with any sense of morality would have known was illegal. They wanted to bring the rule of law to bear in international affairs so that henceforth it would be known throughout the globe that any country that behaves this way, going into illegal, unjust, shall we say, uh, unprovoked wars, wars not in self-defense, that countries that do that would know and their leaders would know individually that they could be held accountable. It's quite interesting to read a letter purport that was written by Justice Jackson of the United States to Harry Truman one week after the Nuremberg judgment was rendered, he wrote to the president and he said, effectively, that henceforth all nations will know that the crimes for which we are now holding the Germans accountable will be crimes for which they and we can and should be held accountable in the future. And that this now constitutes international law based on precedent going forward. 
It was very dramatic, really, particularly when you compare it to where we are today. Before we leave Nuremberg, I want to give a little <clears throat> plug for a quotation by Hermann Goering, who many of you will know was found guilty and cheated the hangman by taking cyanide in his cell. Quotation from him. Of course, the people don't want war. But after all, it's the leaders of the country who determine the policy. And it's always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it's a democracy, a fascist dictatorship, or a parliament, or a communist dictatorship. Voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. So with that, I'll leave Nuremberg. The United Nations was formed at about the same time the Nuremberg trials were going on. The very first General Assembly session adopted in a resolution what they referred to as the Nuremberg Principles and called for the codification of the Nuremberg crimes, presumptively with the idea that there would be a legal code that would be applicable in the international community and there would be a court to try violators. With the Cold War, all of that effort was put on hold until finally, in 1998, there was a roughly five-week or so meeting in Rome where delegates from all around the world came and overwhelmingly voted to adopt a treaty, a statute of the International Criminal Court making four core crimes criminal. Genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the crime of aggression. But aggression was so contentious at the Rome Conference that instead of activating the court's jurisdiction, what they did is they said, the court has jurisdiction, but the court may not exercise its jurisdiction until and unless there is a later amendment clarifying the precise definition of the crime and then also setting forth the conditions under which the court may exercise its jurisdiction and that's code for the fact that the permanent members of the Security Council who all can control the Security Council with a veto all wanted a protocol where the court cannot exercise jurisdiction of the crime of aggression unless they agree unanimously. So they are protected and all of their allies are protected. This is where we are, in fact, today. In two weeks, all of the delegates are going to be meeting in Kampala at the review conference of the International Criminal Court, at which time an amendment on aggression will be considered. Now, as a lead-up to that conference, you, some of you may be aware that both in the United States, for example, under the Bush administration, there were acts legislated whose intention was to kill the International Criminal Court um, by cutting off aid to all countries that would not sign agreements with the United States, refusing ever to extradite anybody. I was told by a State Department lawyer under the Bush administration we don't have to kill the crime of aggression. The British and the French will kill it for us. And now we're coming in two weeks to Kampala. And what has been proposed by the working group on the crime of aggression, which is a bit of a misnomer, I want to tell you just briefly what the working group is. The Assembly of States Parties is the administrative body that oversees the International Criminal Court. 
It's made up of representatives from all of the member states. Non-member countries can also send observers to the court. And they established, shortly after the court was formed in 2002, a so-called working group on the crime of aggression. It would meet in serious working session, typically once a year, in Princeton, New Jersey, for about three and a half days. Wonderful campus of Princeton University, away from the city, away from the mission offices where people get distracted with their day-to-day work. And the reason I want to go out of my way to say a little something about this so-called working group is that notwithstanding the fact that it's called a working group, I was there for every one of those meetings for the last five years. Meetings in The Hague, meetings in Princeton, meetings at the United Nations. Tremendous turnover in personnel. I'll give an example. One day on Sunday in Princeton, the day before we were to meet for three and a half days, I had a conversation on the same day with a delegate who had come from a country that I won't name. And it was obvious that he knew nothing about the crime of aggression, he knew nothing about what the, the meetings were about. And so I was with a young German lawyer, and she looked at him and she said, well, don't you think you should go back to your hotel room now and prepare for the meetings tomorrow? And he said, no, it's Sunday. I don't work on Sunday. She said, well, how did you get here from New York? He said, by train. She said, what did you do? Look out the window the whole time? Now, my point being that this working group has not been a group of committed idealists working together to make something happen. It's people who were there building a chair in many instances. I was at a meeting with a very nice gentleman from, a, I think, a Caribbean island. He spoke no English whatsoever. The program for three and a half days was entirely in English with no translation. It, there's a bit of cynicism in my voice because the idealists in the room from the NGOs who want to see something happen know that the United States now, under the Obama administration, has expressed that it wants to support the court. But it came out with a statement just a few days ago, Harold Coe, the legal advisor to the Secretary of State, uh, flanked by people from the Pentagon, have said that they are concerned that the International Criminal Court is struggling today to manage its caseload, that it is like, quotation here, a wobbly bicycle and that therefore we should do the court a big favor and make sure it does not adopt any provisions on aggression in Kampala. The question that I have as somebody who's been observing this and being at the meetings is, are there any countries, are there any states, men or women on this planet who will stand up in Kampala and say, it is in fact time to criminalize once and for all the crime of aggression with sanctions, which of course would be in the statute I don't know, given that the permanent members of the Security Council don't want to see the court go forward with this unless they control it, whether or not it can fly. There are some proposals, and I've been working directly with the President of the Assembly of State Parties and other delegates quietly behind the scenes, which may provide a lot of flexibility. I want to just throw out to you briefly, and I'll close, that the key issues are two things. One, will the Security Council be able to control this? Because the non-P5 countries are basically saying, that doesn't sound very fair to us. There's justice only as applied to us, retributive justice, but not to you. And the other question is, given the practical realities of the world, is the crime of aggression, which is a crime between countries, so hot politically to handle that in fact it really is true that the court should not be in a position where it could somehow be embroiled in this kind of a case by a country, let's say, referring a case on purported aggression to the International Criminal Court. 
So these are the, the key issues that are still percolating right now. Uh, I have a lot of material with me, so if anybody in the audience has a particular interest in this, I'd be happy to give you some hard copy of things that uh, will give you more detail on it. But that's just kind of a report as to where we are. And by the middle of June, you'll know the answer to the question whether or not the court's jurisdiction has been activated. Great. Thanks very much, Tom. is more important than the technology, but we shall see. Um, I wanted to be able to show some pictures and have some words up there if possible to help um, um, to help in the process of comprehension, having, um, particularly from the point of view of different learning styles and being able to see things, hear things and write things. So um, I come from a background in um, psychology, international relations and international law and, and applying a kind of social, psychosocial critique and understanding to transitional justice, um, thinking about the um, goals of peace building. Now, you found one that looks like the right one? Aha, something here, but it's not appearing up there. You need that control if, control if something, control if four. One of those controls. You don't know which one it is? Mm -hmm. I had to do this on my own, that's what. Hmm, alright. The technical person is gone, so I might need to speak from. It should be that one, but it wasn't working. Or function, maybe. Ah, function. That's it. Yes, she's working. Okay, go back to it. So, um, so there's a context here of transitional justice and then a context of peace building and all that. Um, and, and I'm talking about the idea of how do we think about um, transitional justice in a peace building context and using insights and ideas from peace and conflict studies to define um, or to help us to understand what the purpose of transitional justice is. Okay. So um, when you look at the definition of transitional justice that Kofi Annan uh, used in, his, um, in the report, which is supposed to be up on the screen, which I can't read, the rule of law and transitional justice in conflict and post-conflict societies, right, in August 2004. So a couple of things that he mentioned about the goals of transitional justice included peace and reconciliation, just two of those goals, right? Um, so then I'll talk about a definition of peace building, and... Um, and again, using the UN Security Council um, as the definition. And, and one of the main focuses of peace building being the idea of um, sustainability. Yeah? So, and the idea that peace building is a very broad concept. Yeah? Like we were talking about justice this earlier session, that justice is a very broad concept. You can understand different types of justice. The same with um, peace building that it implies. Yes, beautifully on the screen. Maybe I could use the screen anyway, but that would be rather easier than I think. <laughs> well, at least there's some benefit in this. Um, except that's the wrong one. Aha. Um, sorry, there's one second. I don't, see, I don't have a printout of the final version, so that's also I apologise for the, um, at least if I can see it on the screen. I see it. 
just turned 95, <laughs> he, uh, was he's talking more about the significance of relationships now than, than in his early work, and, and, and re-emphasising that idea that the human need for identity is the most significant, and that the way that that manifests is in, in trying to resolve a conflict, is transforming relationships between identities. Yeah? So that, that, of course, comes back to a lot of the um, other theories and ideas um, we hearing from um, Johan Goldfund earlier. And last but not least, of course, John Paul Lederach's work um, about the role of relationship transformation, reconciliation as a component of peace building. So putting those together, having a sense that transformative peace building is something that, that focuses on building relationships, um, as well as the structures and institutions, that, um, that this then enables a more holistic perspective that takes into account the expectations of the participants in the conflict or the local populations or society participation, um, that, that also helps to bridge that gap between the past and the future, to think about that, um, that transitional justice is something that is not just about dealing with the past, it is about setting up things for the future, yeah? um, setting up building peace for the future. So, um, how much time have I used now because, I, because of the technical stuff? Left or used? Well, that means halfway. Used. Okay, yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, um, part of my strategy in thinking about what is important in peace building or transitional justice is to think about what are the needs and expectations and priorities of people um, in the communities concerned. The people who have been most directly affected by the violence are those almost int intimately involved in the peace building process. So as part of that um, exploration from my own point of view, I've, I've been to Rwanda twice in 1998 and 2005, in Cambodia now twice in 1999 and then again in 2009, just last year, in East Timor in 2004 and Sierra Leone in 2006. So over a span of just over 10 years, looking at, at um, what's going on in four different countries and trying to come to terms with understanding enough you know, in a relatively short time, not doing an anthropological study as such, but still trying to get a sense of what's going on with people's relationships and, and in that um, community um, and, and their perspective. So it's, 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 it's a psychosocial, micro-level, qualitative approach to understanding the um, processes going on between people in their communities. So. Um, yeah, so in each of those uh, four places, I've asked people about what's, what, what does justice mean to you, what does reconciliation mean to you, um, and, and, and also asked people about what, um, um, uh, about their responses to the transitional justice mechanisms in place at the time. So what's come out of that, um, and I wanted to sort of illustrate what's coming out of that by referring to three of those countries, not not time Cambodia this time, but a little bit about Rwanda, East Timor, Sierra Leone in five minutes or less. Um, so the um, good part about this is I don't have to refer to everything on the slide because I don't know what I'm probably including. <laughs> on the other hand, it makes it hard because I have to read out some things that otherwise you would have been able to read. So I've got details in the field research, how many people I interviewed, blah, blah, blah. So that kind of thing, which I'm not going to go through. Um, but rather to say that in Rwanda in July 1998, it was um, the, the few people that I managed to interview on that occasion, um, it was clearly that people, uh, that the survivors, as defined by the Rwanda government, the Tutsi survivors, really wanted to see legal justice of some kind, and more often than not, it was 
um, um, the, the um, prosecution and um, jail, uh, imprisonment is not sufficient, that they should have the death penalty. Nothing is strong enough punishment for these people. That's, so, but part of that is then, okay, there's a need for some kind of legal retributive justice being expressed. This, this is the point coming out of that. Um, there's also a need for um, um, being expressed for something to do with um, what I call socio-economic justice as the overarching term. People living in, and, and there's a quote, um, somebody saying, it's difficult to forget or to reconcile when living in poverty and, um, and material needs are not being met to replace vertical stolen things. So it's very difficult to reconcile or to live in peace or to forget when living in poverty, etc. So that became a recurring theme that I heard in all of my field research. When I asked about what justice means to someone, it's, it's the socio-economic side comes out very clearly. The poverty, the, the lack of access to resources comes out very, very clearly. Um, so, um, and that came through very clearly when I went back in 2005 and I was looking at the Gachacha, um, the, uh, people's responses to the Gachacha process, was again, people's concerns were with, and, and this time I was able to interview um, Tutsi and Hutu, um, so, and, and getting a broader um, perspective on people's needs and responses. And coming from both sides was this perceptive, you know, this perception that the other side had it better economically. And the people who had it the best economically were the former genocide there who were in comfortable Western jails. Yeah. So this was a concern. And of course also the concern about political justice from the point of view of um, being perceived as the legal justice as being perceived as victor's justice, which reinforced the, the, the political um, um, inequities continuing in the country. Um, I'm not going to go there. So then in East Timor, similar kinds of, what have I got now, two minutes? Four. Four, okay. Um, thank you. Um, so in East Timor, I was, I was looking particularly at the Commission for Reception of Truth and Reconciliation and people's response <coughs> to that. Yeah? So um, again, there's a, the, the sense that um, some kind of punishment was important, but what was very interesting to me when I was in East Timor was the emphasis of Timorese talking about um, justice in a way that didn't distinguish between retributive punishment kind of justice and restorative or reconciliatory kind of justice. There, there was a sense that this was all one thing, that there, this Western dichotomization division was something that didn't seem to ring true um, or to, to have any resonance within the, the communications that I was able to have. Now that's limited of course by language, translation and interpretation and understanding, but that was my perception. And it's consistent with an analysis of the traditional um, Nahibiti justice reconciliation process that also combines within it the sense of um, uh, retribution as well as restoration of community. And people would say to me, oh, it's okay, where's my quote? Um, the, um, there is no justice for East Timorese people. This is a quote from a 46-year-old male victim of serious and non-serious crimes that I'm um, in East Timor. And um, he said, if the courts try the militia, so justice will be done. Trials should be in Timor and not in Jakarta. I agree with Janana, that's the, the Prime Minister's visit, but Waranto, the former Indonesian general, should go to trial in Timor for ordering the deaths of people. So he agreed that Janana Gushma had hunted and visited the former general um, Waranto. 
But he also thought that Lorenzo should be tried and that people were angry about what he did to the people. Now, even though Gennaro makes reconciliation with Lorenzo, justice has to keep happening in Timor and the militia still must go to prison. Um, somebody else, a woman, said to me, I want to make reconciliation with the... Uh, sorry, she said, the militia who killed my brother have to go to prison and I want to make reconciliation with the militia. Um, so that's a, sort of an emphasis on that kind of justice, but combining with retributive and restorative justice in one kind of uh, way of thinking. And uh, also the call for truth, for, for knowledge, for understanding what had happened was very strong when I was interviewing people in East Channel. They saying, I don't know where the remains are, I want to know exactly who killed my daughter, as an example of the quote on that. So there's a very strong, what came through from East Timor for me was there's an emphasis on people wanting to know what had happened, or what had happened to their loved ones, um, some kind of accountability, and also the um, socioeconomic justice needs also came through very strongly. They were concerned about needing a job, healthcare, safe water, school fees, help to start a small business, um, etc. Um, so. So what, what I'm trying to build up here is a picture of when I ask people about what justice means to them, is these all, the different kinds of justice all come up. Yeah? It's not just legal justice, and it's not just um, punishment, and it's not just um, thinking um, about the past, it's also about the future. Yeah? So um, in Sierra Leone, I'll just mention briefly, because I was, I was talking with people um, in response to their opinions and ideas about the um, Truth Commission there and the, and the um, Special Court to see on the own. But what came through most strongly there was less of an interest in the, the outcomes of the court itself or the Truth Commission or participating. What came through there most strongly was, again, the socioeconomic justice, lack of shelter, no reparations, lack of access to jobs, unable to meet basic needs. But what came through the strongest was the political justice aspect. And I want to read one quote from, um, um, uh, or two quotes from, from somebody I interviewed in Silvian in Freetown in 2006. It said, the government is not committed to doing what is necessary to pre produce a just peace, quote, unquote. While another said that people need to pray for a very good, strong political leader who is not biased, who talks straight, and that will be justice. So that was the first time when I did my interview where I had people who were directly able and willing to say to me, this is what we need for justice, very much about the political justice. Um, so then this is, imagine a nice table now. We have um, types or aspects on one side and principles on the other, whichever way. This model for transformative justice that then becomes a representation of a holistic perspective of justice that includes the accountability or legal justice. But that accountability or legal justice includes somehow both retributive and restorative elements. That it also includes um, some kind of truth, and I use the four definitions of truth from the South African Truth Commission, that it's very important to think about um, for different people coming up with different aspects of truth that's important to them, the personal narrative truth, the social dialogic truth, the factual forensic truth, of course, and also the restorative, um, uh, future-oriented uh, truth, um, healing truth, that's the other word I wanted. So that that's part of that. That's, that's, the, the, that's a bigger picture than just something, a word called truth, but rather to break it down into understanding the different aspects that is important. And not just the knowledge of what happened, but also acknowledgement. And I, I missed out on that quote. It was on one of the slides that you didn't see. 
um, about the focus on knowing, uh, of having somebody, uh, having acknowledgement that what happened was wrong. Not only what happened, but knowledge, some kind of acknowledgement that what happened to them was wrong. And that was really, really important when I was doing my interviewing in Cambodia and, and hearing, um, even though the, the tribunal was 30 years after the um, Khmer Rouge regime, to hear um, survivors saying that then knowing that this court existed was a way of kind of giving them justice because it was, even if the, the former Khmer Rouge didn't acknowledge it, just the fact that the international community and the government had got together and had this court, they were acknowledging that what I experienced if I was a survivor, what I experienced was wrong, it shouldn't have happened, and how that can be um, transformative for individuals. So we've got legal justice, so the truth sort of justice, psychosocial justice, socioeconomic justice and political justice. And what's really most important about that then is, is picking up on um, Ramamani's emphasis on the prospective as well as the historical in all of those aspects. Right? So what I'm talking about is the idea that legal justice is not only about the past, but it is about rule of law in the future, for example. It's not just about um, socioeconomic justice in the past, in other words, reparations or restitution. It's also about distributive justice in the future. Yeah? Um, so it's, it's that, and it's also about thinking about the relationship transformation at the same time as the, um, the structural transformation. Um, and that means that, that we're talking about how people relate with each other in the process. This is the relationship between the international interveners, if there are any, which mostly there are, and the um, international civil society or the local civil society and the governments in that case. And everything that... The, the, there is relation, a focus on how we relate with each other. This is my peace, peace conflict transformation background um, or emphasis. That, that it's how we relate with each other that mirrors or, or um, thank you, that mirrors or sets the model or an example of how we want to relate with each other. That is what that what the community societies will need in the future in order to relate in a way that will promote what Galton refers to, the need to have alternative ways of resolving conflict. Yeah? That's what the law is for, but there's other things as well. You know, it's other ways of resolving conflict that go beyond the um, legal and structural, but also that, that have a sense that the, of, of, of um, an intentionality of, of how we can um, relate with each other that, that can um, in future avoid such violence occurring in the past. So then you're talking about building in trust, respect, understanding, the way that empathy, those kind of psychosocial values, if you like, in the way that we relate, um, as being part of that. And, and the other aspect that I didn't mention, give as much emphasis, I normally talk a lot about, is the civil society participation that was talked about earlier. And that um, both the idea that you're involving local populations in this process of of, um, so that's part of the relationship building is how you work with, if you're an outside intervener, how you work with local populations. Or if you're an elite from Kampala, how you work with um, people in the um, camps or, or wherever in, in um, northern Uganda. That kind of example. And that whatever you're doing is, is related somehow then, that, you know, almost it's a factor if you've, if you've taken into account the needs of people from different perspectives, then you will be um, focusing on understanding different cultural approaches that coexist with, often, the dominant Western worldview and practice of how um, the outside intervener might think about what transformative justice is about. So I'm going to end with one sentence, the concluding sentence. A concept of transformative justice that links the past and the future through locally relevant mechanisms and processes 
that provide accountability, acknowledgement, political and socio-economic justice, provides the basis for a holistic, integrated and comprehensive peace-building process. Nice idealistic statement and what I'm struggling with, what we are all struggling with, is the challenges of how to make that operationalizable, how to, nice technical word, how to put that into practice. Okay, thank you. Is it possibly get the blue light turned off yeah. for this presentation? Is it yeah, possible thank you. Up there? It's kind of the road to Damascus here at the moment. Yeah. Are you that one? I turned it off, but you can turn it on again. It'll work. That'll work now. I, I want to take a somewhat different tack. Um, I've been working in East Timor since 2003. I was a researcher and writer on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and my work there was totally grounded by that learning experience, which was um, quite harrowing. Uh, in the process of that work, I concentrated my future work in Timor largely around the problems that women and children in Timor have and have had for hundreds and hundreds of years. Timor is a country that experienced 475 years of Portuguese colonialism and benign neglect from a developmental perspective. It was also a time when um, the patriarchal nature of their colonial uh, administration uh, impacted very seriously on individuals. Uh, physical violence was a punishment directed at men and boys if they didn't conform, and the expectation of a soft pillow on district travel uh, by colonial administrators and foreign merchants and traders affected profoundly the lives of women and girls. The Japanese invasion uh, forces in 1942 imposed very uh, strict regimes of forced labor, torture, execution, rape, and sexual slavery on the Timorese. During their very brief occupation, which ended in 1945, as many as approximately 60,000 East Timorese died. The Portuguese returned, but with the Carnation Revolution of 1974, they precipitously withdrew away from Timor, uh, ending their 475 years of colonial hegemony. Less than a year and a half later, only 10 days after a very hesitant declaration of independence, the Indonesians inv invaded Timor, and their occupation left about 180,000 people dead and 40% of all women and girls as survivors of rape or sexual assault in 19, by, by 1999. And the final destructive violence in 1999 uh, by the Indonesian TNI and their 22 militias uh, is very, very well documented. Um, Post-conflict insecurity since 1999 has, has been almost continuous in East Timor, and it's impacted particularly on women, children, and youth. This kind of historical conditioning and the growing culture of impunity have determined 
the reality in Timor over the last 10 years. Um, in order to understand it, we have to look uh, at the issues of human rights and justice and peace in Timor, uh, because these things cannot improve without uh, sustainable um, efforts and development can only flow once these things are in place. Uh, East Timorese, as my colleague has said, have great expectations in regard to justice for victims. Uh, Kofi Annan, um, as late as uh, August 2006, after the new crisis had begun in Timor, uh, said, crimes against humanity, gross violations of human rights, and grave breaches of humanitarian law were committed in, in East Timor in 1999. There can and should be no impunity regarding such acts. Establishing the truth and promoting reconciliation are necessary parts of the healing process for both countries and for all the victims. It would be deeply regrettable if the reconciliation process foreclosed the possibility of achieving accountability. The limited degree of accountability achieved so far for the serious human rights violations continues to raise questions about how best the institutions in both Indonesia and East Timor can address this concern. Recently, last August, there was the 10th anniversary of the popular consultation which led to Timor becoming independent in 2002. And at that time, it was an opportunity for many, many people to reflect back about issues of truth and justice, not only in the context of the Indonesian occupation, but also in the context of an internal conflict which began in 2006, which saw 150,000 people forced into internally displaced people's camps, uh, 65 of them in the capital alone, and many people fleeing quite above that number to various districts. A survivor of the brutal Likisar massacre in 1999 said, My hope for Timor is to have a good future, but with peace and justice. I think if there is no justice for those criminals, especially for those generals who were here, the ones who are presenting themselves as candidates in the elections in Indonesia, what will happen if they become leaders one day in Indonesia? Might they attack us again in the future? Here I want to more or less leave the story because I want to talk about fear briefly and about the role that uh, fear plays socially in East Timor. Fear during the occupation mitigated against family cohesion and family open communication. Parents, grandparents, aunties and uncles and children did not talk about important things because if any one of the family were, were stopped and interrogated, they could reveal information that could endanger the entire family. People could die. Terrible things could happen. 
So one of the more important aspects of restoring peace in Timor was to open uh, cross-generational communication. Uh, a colleague here in Oxford, uh, a very prominent neuroscientist, Susan uh, Greenfield, uh, gave a presentation with a lawyer colleague about mediation recently. And in this presentation, what she pointed out was that in order for mediation to be successful, what you had to do was to stop the work of the lizard part of your brain, the part of your brain that experiences this sort of animal reaction of fear and flight, the irrational part of your brain which when it is activated mitigates against your ever being able to be rational and to um, make decisions properly. What you need uh, to activate in mediation, uh, she explained, was the full part of your brain, the part that really only begins to, to develop when you're about 18 or 19 years old and which can continue to develop through your life if you use um, intellectual development as, as a tool in your life so that you pull up the logical, reasoning, rational part of, of your hu human experience and capacity. In this, what she said was that in order to get um, parties to conflict to um, be able to sit down and talk rationally, uh, you cannot have anything other than the full brain in action. And this became a kind of mantra for a lot of the peace-building work, in fact, that has been going on in East Timor since um, 2002, since independence. I want very briefly to describe to you some of the efforts that have been made in Timor at the community level. Uh, many of them have involved the work of women and also the work of children. One of the first projects that I became involved in was uh, an effort by uh, two uh, people, uh, Luca and Gabi Ganser, who came to Timor and who had an idea to start a free art school, not knowing really what that would entail. They travelled the country for a month to get to know it, and then they established themselves in a large house in Dili, the capital. And they opened the house uh, for two sessions every day, in the morning and in the afternoon. And they would accept anybody who came to these sessions. Um, and they made no demands on them. Children could come once and never come again. They could come every day, or they could come when they could. And in the beginning, it was very clear that the majority of children who came were actually street children who had no place to live, no access to shelter or food or any of the normal things that you would expect a child to have. What we did was we just laid mattresses all over the floor in the majority of the rooms and we allowed the children to sleep there and also to um, have an evening meal so that they had some food every day. And over time, obviously, some of them stayed and were committed to the project of 
of painting and drawing and, and doing art. And art became a healing mechanism in their lives. What was possible to observe was that at the beginning, many of the paintings and drawings that they did were extremely violent. And this was their, work, their means of working through their trauma. Uh, they would show um, uh, very, very violent scenes of people fighting each other, of blood everywhere, of decapitated heads and so on. Things have changed. That school, which was begun in 2003, now, seven years later, still exists and has a large following of, of students. And um, I will show you at the end one of the paintings that uh, has been that was produced in 2007, um, which indicates the movement forward towards trying to find a means of creating a Timorese identity um, in the absence of, of fear, which was so driving uh, children's beliefs at the beginning in 2002-03. Another organization that I would like to speak about is um, an organization which is called Ba Futuru, for the future. It's an organization that works exclusively with children and youth or with people who work with children and youth. At the beginning, uh, what they did was to devise a... And this is a Timorese NGO uh, and was fostered in its formation by other uh, women's... Uh, networks of NGOs, Timorese networks of NGOs. They teach child rights and human rights, and they teach it very comprehensively through um, four weeks of training. And in that period of time, they use art uh, as a means for children to explore their own world. The children lie down on a big piece of paper and another child comes and draws the outline of their body and inside the outline the children draw or write their hopes, their fears, what they would like Timor to be in the future. And then there are discussions about every child's work. They also engage in um, theatrical productions and uh, recently they had um, a an experience of uh, working with photography where they were given over a period of 10 weeks a camera a week and they were told photograph what's in your heart what's important in your life today many of the children were IDP children and they had been displaced from their homes they had uh, very little to cling on to school was interrupted they had no routinized life and the photographs that they produced were exhibited um, and the, um, they had great satisfaction from being able to make public their, their personal visions. They were <coughs> greatly encouraged uh, in doing this by the response that they had from their parents, uh, from uh, a community organization where they did the work, and also by 
uh, other members of uh, the Dili community. Another project uh, was a project in reforestation. One of the features of the Indonesian occupation was to uh, deforest Timor, partly uh, for the, the material gain that timbering brought, but also uh, in order to make it impossible for the guerrilla uh, leaders and followers to, to hide. If you cleared the space, uh, it was very difficult to hide. Uh, this project was initiated by women, and the women uh, were able, through starting nurseries, to have cooperative <coughs> agreement at the local level that uh, anybody who came forward could get 50 seedlings. At the end of the first year, if more than half of them survived, they would get 10 cents for every surviving seedling, which they could then use to reinvest in buying more seedlings. You could see how, over time, this sort of project could lead to um, quite a large replanting scheme if it was taken up in the community. After five years, the land on which they had been planting their seedlings was given over to them inalienably. It was deeded to them. So they had a permanent investment for themselves and their families and their descendants in the future. Additionally, they were offered uh, sandalwood trees, which have very, very high economic value, but which take a long time to grow. And they were encouraged to plant these sandalwood trees near their houses uh, so that there would never be a dispute over ownership of them. This project was piloted in three districts and now it's being uh, expanded into other districts in Timor. But it has been largely successful and the women involved in it have taken ownership of it and in propagating it in other areas. Another project in a rural area that I've been involved in, myself personally, has been something that we decided to call the Earth Book, Livru Rai. And this was a generational reattachment identity building project. Uh, as I said, because of the fear during the Indonesian occupation, uh, people stopped talking. How do you get and encourage people to start talking again? What uh, level would be most receptive to this kind of work. Middle school was chosen because it, there are three years of middle school. Uh, they're older than primary children and they don't, don't have the pressure of the exams that confront students in secondary school. So in the first year, the first year uh, students were asked to write an autobiography. In order to do that, they had to go and talk to people because how did they know where they were born, what the circumstances were, how <laughs> things um, had progressed as they grew older. They had to talk to their grandparents, they had to talk to their parents, their aunts, their uncles, and anybody that they could find for information. When they had completed that, 
they were asked in the community to speak to people of their grandparents' generation in their own lineage and to gather their biographies, three men and three women, each of them. You can see how exponentially over time a community oral history would build up, and that was the goal. Not only that children would have an identity through knowing about their own lives, but also about the lives of their senior generation, grandparent generation uh, individuals in the community, and sharing it with other children who had their own stories and, uh, and so on. The second years were asked to gather information that is orally transmitted. They were asked to um, gather, for example, um, traditions of origin, uh, stories about life processes, um, birth, adolescence, marriage, death, um, and about um, the environment. And songs, dances, and other sorts of performative uh, experiences which had been outlawed during the, the occupation, which if they were not transmitted, would be completely lost, were also gathered. And they had to consult older people in the community to get that information. The third years were asked to uh, do a project which encouraged uh, planning and thinking. They were asked to look at some process, a process of weaving, a process of traditional medicine, accumulating inf information about all the tools that were used, the materials that were used, and how it progressed from one stage to another to encourage analytical thinking, which is not very encouraged in, in school as it stands now in Timor. The result of the Livru Rai has been an accumulation over a, a now five, more than five-year period of all of this information, and it's seen as a community chapbook that has gone a long way towards building identity. And building identity is the cornerstone, I think, of trying to create an end uh, to violence and to encourage people to cooperate one with the other, whether they're children or, or adults. And children and adults can work together to rehabilitate communities and to restore peace through identification and through income generating projects which I've described. Thank you very much.